This episode of WMFA is brought to you by W.W. Norton and The Shadow King by Maaza Mengiste. Shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize and named a Best Book of the Year by The New York Times, NPR, Elle, Time, and more, The Shadow King is, quote, an unforgettable epic from an immensely talented author who's unafraid to take risks. That's Michael Schaub at NPR. Set during Mussolini's 1935 invasion of Ethiopia, The Shadow King takes us back to the first real conflict of World War II, casting light on the women soldiers who were left out of the historical record. At its heart is orphaned maid Harut, who finds herself tumbling into a new world of thefts and violations, of betrayals and overwhelming rage. What follows is a heartrending and unputdownable exploration of what it means to be a woman at war. The Shadow King, now available where all books are sold. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Anne Helen Peterson, whose latest book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, is out now. There need to be things that turn our society on its side, reorient ourselves towards work, towards parenting, towards our conception of essential workers and their value. All of that stuff needs to happen. A former senior culture writer for BuzzFeed, Anne now writes her newsletter, Culture Study, as a full-time venture on Substack. She received her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, where she focused on the history of celebrity gossip. Her previous books, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, and Scandals of Classic Hollywood, were featured in NPR, Elle, and The Atlantic. She lives in Missoula, Montana. Can't Even explores the unique socioeconomic and political factors that contribute to millennials feeling like, well, we can't even. Burnout did not originate with millennials, Anne writes, but it has become acutely, specifically painful for our generation. The reasons are many. Being groomed to become human capital, tirelessly productive members of the workforce. The constant personal myth-making of social media. Shouldering massive student loan debt in a job market defined by the Great Recession of 2008. Like Anne, I'm an elder millennial, and I felt deeply the argument of can't even. Millennials are often portrayed as entitled and lazy, blowing our home down payments on avocado toast, even as we ourselves know that we're working twice as hard to get half as far in a losing game. A disruptive gig economy where we have few rights and little security. As Anne writes, this is in sharp contrast to the unprecedented economic stability our baby boomer parents were born into. Anne is curious and empathetic toward this generation with whom our differences are so highly memeable, examining the economic changes that both shaped their adulthoods and influenced how they raised their children. In truth, Anne writes, millennials are boomers' worst nightmare because, in many cases, we were once their most well-intentioned dream. Boomers are, in many ways, responsible for us, both literally, as our parents, teachers, and coaches, and figuratively, creating the ideologies and economic environment that would shape us. To read Can't Even is to watch, like a time-lapse video, the fraying of our social contract. The decades-long erosion of the collective good for the individual gain. The long-term sharpening of our economy from robust labor unions and middle-class career paths to a surgical tool that exploits the worker to reward the shareholder. The privatization and monetization of our most public problems. And all the while, because we were raised with the dogma of success, millennials can't help but feel that the problem is us. It's the millennial way, Anne writes, if the system is rigged against you, just try harder.
Can even explores these issues with the conversational erudite tone that anyone familiar with Anne's previous work can expect. We talk here about Anne's process of synthesizing her research and analysis into prose. We also talk about contextualizing a topic, as she puts it, horizontally and vertically, plus what a freelance career looks like now. At WMFA's Patreon page, Anne and I talk about burnout in writing. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Thank you so much for making the time. I loved this book. So I highlighted so many pages of this book on my Kindle that like I couldn't flip the page. <laughs> it was just like everything. All of my notes are just like, yes, yes. So I'm going <laughs> to... So I'm going to try not to just not like fangirl out on you. Um, but but the the initial thing that I found really interesting, um, and I think maybe a lot of millennials who will come to this, you know, because I, I was born in 83. I'm like a classic, like old millennial, yeah. um, you know, is is we know that we have this rep as this kind of like entitled generation. And we don't know how that happened when we feel so shit upon kind of constantly from all directions all the time. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little, can you start us off by kind of talking a little bit about how that that persona came to be? This idea of these kids who like can't buy homes because of their avocado toast, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I it's so interesting, right? Because I think a lot of the original foundation for our, our reputation was set when we were pretty young. Um, and I think some of it had to do with like the onset of helicopter parenting, so-called helicopter parenting, a lot of which, you know, in the book sociologists call concerted cultivation like this very hands-on uh expensive understanding of what parenting should look like which is oftentimes just like more parenting and some of us had that some millennials had like I didn't really have that and part of that has to do with my age being born in 1981 and some of it has to do with the fact that I was growing up in rural Idaho and there just like weren't that many ways to like hands-on helicopter parent. <laughs> um, so I think it started to happen right about when a lot of millennials were in high school. And then when we got into the job market and graduated, you know, the first kind of waves of us graduating into the job market, there was this sense of us, like, I think, asking to be appreciated or to be compensated or to be thought of as unique and special. And I oftentimes I think about the things that millennials might have asked for in the workplace. And a lot of them are things that like <laughs> all workers should kind of ask for, right? Like to <laughs> or or I think about like who who taught us that we should think that way about ourselves and our value. Right? It's our parents. It's the same people the same generations that really derided us for asking for those things. Like the, the common thing that's said about millennials is like, Oh, we want a medal for everything uh, that we believe that like, Oh, just for participating in something that you should get a medal. And first of all, I don't 
know a lot of millennials who actually received those medals, but also who was buying those medals? Like who was providing those medals for us when we were in elementary school? Like it wasn't us who were like, where is my medal? <laughs> someone, someone purchased and distributed and set that expectation for medals to be there. So, you know, I don't want to always like say like, oh, like millennials are, have no responsibility for some of our reputation, but I also want to highlight the ways in which like we were set up <laughs> to to have this reputation. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the things more recently that we've come to be associated with are a direct effect of the, like, the simultaneous uh, precarity of graduating into this horrible job market with the Great Recession and the immediate aftermath, but then all of these expectations of, like, middle-class bourgeois consumerism. So, like, the the standard trope is, like, the person paying, you know, thousands of dollars in student debt who is also paying $8 for avocado toast. So the reason you do that is because you went to probably an expensive undergrad or and or an expensive graduate program. So you have a ton of debt, but now you are working in like a creative job. And the way to get a creative job is you have to live in the city. And like the thing that you do as like a bourgeois creative on the weekends to you know assert your cultural capital is you go get avocado toast. So all of those things kind of collide. Absolutely. And and what you know, what's so funny, there there were several kind of case studies in the book that that I really was like, did I speak to her? Like, <laughs> like Caroline in particular, I was like, that that might be me. Um, but but what I think is so funny about listening to these experiences firsthand is like there is a, you know, of course there's that conditioning and that nurturing because that has to come from somewhere, but, be, but like little, you know, good students that we wanted to be, we internalize that all so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what really struck me is how many people were just saying like, nobody really, and I think you even say this in the first person at some point that like, nobody told me that, but nobody really had to. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing that I, um, is maybe hard for some people to understand is that like, it's not just whether or not your parents believed these things about like college at any cost and like get a cool job or do what you love. Like those messages didn't have to be coming from inside of your home. Mm -hmm. They could also be coming from your peers and from the media that you consumed and from your teachers and mentors and like all over the place. Like ideology does not just pass straight down from, from our genes or whatever, you know? Right. And I think I think you do a really good job, and I would love to um, hear you talk a little bit about kind of uh, putting the sort of baking this into the the final text that you know because there is in the media there is this very kind of absolute uh, millennial boomer antagonism, um, and definitely you show that there is some you know there's some rationale for a lot of that, but I think you also uh, you 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 give a pretty sympathetic and nuance take to just say like, well, wait a second, why, why, why were the boomers behaving that way? Or like, why were the, our parents' generations behaving that way? And, and I think what's really striking as you move through this timeline um, of these several generations is just how much everybody is just scrambling for security. Yeah. And just like, is just like, I don't know, is this how we do it? Okay. And then just like <laughs> shoves that messaging into their kids. Cause like, who doesn't want their kids to be more secure than they are. And, and so I think that relationship is very interesting, but I imagine that because 
some of these issues, especially when you are a millennial writing it, are so infuriating um, that it probably had to be, I would imagine for me, it would be very difficult to kind of like, I think I would have to have a few just like really angry burn it down drafts before I could kind of like <laughs> let any sort of like nuance come into play. I think that it really arrived from a place of research curiosity, you know, and like that my past as like an academic and as someone who's who's largely interested in history as well. I was just like, what was going on in the economy? And, and like that made us act this way, right? That made our parents act this way. And it's so clear, I think, if you look back at our economic history and the way that it intersects with our ideas about child rearing and then like our ideas about the educational system and that sort of thing, like how all three of those things kind of combine and form into this like precariousness stew. Like people are reacting to precarity in all of these ways that like, you know, I was doing an interview last week that was really interesting. Someone was like, I don't want to, like, how can we talk about precarity and how people react to it without going into the, like, Trump voters are acting out of an economic anxiety right. trope. And, like, I do think that a lot of Trump voters are clinging to different ideologies mm -hmm. in part out of economic anxiety. The thing is, is that... <laughs> That, like a lot of those ideologies are racist and xenophobic and inexcusable, right? Like right. there's a way to to pinpoint the, the fundamental instability while also like absolutely decrying and rejecting the strategies that they adopt. And the way that I think about that in the book is the way that a lot of boomers across the political spectrum reacted to the economic instability of the 1970s when they were entering the job market by basically voting in ways that would eventually either deregulate or defund a lot of the industries that offered stability in the first place. Right. <laughs> so they thought probably, you know, like there was this idea that like trickle down economics would maybe repair the economy. I think that they really thought it would give more stability. That was totally wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think you can see how if you were given a convincing argument about trickle down economics and about cutting taxes and didn't think about the fact that like, oh, okay, so if we cut taxes, then that also means that we will gradually and dramatically defund our public institutions, educational institutions, which will eventually lead to higher costs of tuition across the board, which will eventually lead for my children to have much more debt to go to college than I ever did. Right. Yeah, it, it's really, um, you know, I think especially in the in the kind of COVID moment that we're in um, and watching the way that we've handled that as a country and the way that other countries handled it, I, I think this whole socioeconomic history that you lay out in the book uh, just really kept coming back to, for me, um, this, like, this shift from the collective to the individual. Like, we stopped. Yep caring and investing in like the greater good of the of the community and i think you know that that when we talk about frustration too with with these trump voters it's a similar um it comes from this for me at least it comes from this similar place that the covid stuff does of just like i don't know how to make you care about other people right um right. and and i think like 
And, and, you know, and it's especially like insult to injury that that boomers are the ones who benefited from that infusion of investment in, in the collective. Yeah. Um, and then they dismantle it. But but even still, I think like you see why that mindset would then think of us as entitled because we're asking for like we're asking for a completely different thing. Right. Or in some cases, just asking for what they had. Right. right. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I guess I meant more of like a, you know, like we're kind of like, like the vision is completely different. Yes. Yeah. And it's articulated different. Right. And that's why they can't necessarily recognize it. Like a lot of boomers can't recognize it. Right. And it's hard because like, I do think that a lot of the the knee jerk reaction from millennials is things like that great book that's like boomers are sociopaths, you know, <laughs> like, like they they have brought the ladder up from beneath them, um, and it it doesn't necessarily make like there's just a lot of cognitive dissonance because you're like yeah. I thought that you wanted stability for me, then why did you do this? Mm-hmm. And what I you know if you sit down with a receptive boomer. <laughs> And you talk through some of these ideas. I think most of them can really see what we're talking about. Um, and that, you know, those are the people, the older generation that like is actually receptive to my book. Right. <laughs> but there are a lot of people, though, who I think are like, you know, we made good decisions. Exactly. Like I worked hard. You should work hard. Life is hard. <laughs> All of those things. And I, I hope that, you know, the message of my book is like, you do not have to acclimate yourself to like whatever the understanding of hard is. Like things can be different. That doesn't mean that you're not as hard of a worker or good as a right. person. It just means that you don't want to acclimate to this form of suffering. Right. But I think that that dovetails. So I completely agree with you. I don't mean to set up the butt like I like, said that, but um, but I think what's so, that dovetails so in such an interesting way with like um, uh, this other sentiment that comes up, you know, throughout the book of this idea of millennials having a really hard time conceptually with downtime, which is something yep. that frankly my partner and my therapist both tell me regularly. <laughs> but, like you just like don't physically know what to do with yourself. Like you like I sit down on the couch and it's like, okay, well but wait, no, right? Like I could put laundry on and then I could like then something's happening mm-hmm. while I'm relaxing. And and it so this idea that um that hard equals good. Mm-hmm. I think it's just so baked into us. And like, I know, you know, I don't know if this, if this comes up in your writing at all, but I, I know definitely when I'm, when I'm writing, I am often more distrustful of things that come out faster. Um, even though like, <laughs> they feel better, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's just sort of like there, I can look at it qualitatively and be like, oh, that's a, that's, that's good work. But like, it's like, well, but I didn't agonize over it. Should maybe I should hang on to it until I agonize <laughs> over it. I, you know, with writing, I don't always feel that way. I'm more, I feel more confident when something just like flows out. I'm like, amazing. (laughs) I'm like, wow, really going, going strong. And I should feel less confident oftentimes. Like I should sit with it a little bit longer and that sort of thing. Um, But I do think that like this fetishization of hard work just because it's hard right it's super interesting right and like a lot of it you know i've been talking um with different members of the clergy like i did this recent piece on clergy burnout and like i'm always fascinated with the very like protestant style work ethic at the heart of our national ideology and 
I just like, it doesn't have to be this way. Like hard work, suffering does not make you better, right? right. Like we are, we are an advanced society. We should be working. Like it, if anything, like looking at what's happened in this past six months with COVID, like incredible physical suffering, incredible psychological suffering. This is not making us a better nation in any way. It just like points to our overarching refusal to to think as a group instead focusing on our incredible desire to just act as individuals and like ideas of liberty and all that sort of thing. So yeah, I just I want people to embrace rest. And that's hard. <laughs> yeah, can you talk a little bit about the the there are a couple um really interesting case studies that you cite in the book um about uh, experiments with shortened work days um, yeah. in New Zealand and in Japan. Can you tell folks a little bit about that? I am obsessed with this. And this is actually my next book project um, that I'm working on with my partner. So that's exciting. Oh, uh, awesome. About working from home and how like either working from home can like totally screw us over and turn us into work robots, or <laughs> it can actually let you figure out how to work less. Yeah. And that means actually just you still do the same amount of work usually, right? Like you, the, the product is the same. It's just that it's better work and more efficient work and less time working. The experiments that I'm really interested in, and I was actually working on like a couple big stories on this before the pandemic hit. And then it just felt like weird and inappropriate to talk about four day work week. But uh, these studies were very different in some ways because one is like Microsoft in Japan, which you're like, oh, it's a tech company, blah, blah, blah. Tech companies are always experimenting with work. And then the other company is a trust company, which is like, uh, like the the American analog would be someone like a lawyer who works with people on like their wills and that sort of thing in New Zealand. And they both decided, okay, instead of like working four tens, which sometimes some companies do that in order to like save money on like electricity. <laughs> um, so instead of working for 10 days a week, they just decided, okay, same hours. Everyone still works the same hours. You're just not working on one of those days. And in the beginning, especially like the company in New Zealand, they really, they, they posited it as an experiment. Like if we can keep our output up, like if we can still be serving the same amount of customers, you know, like profits, all that stuff, if we can keep that up, then you'll get to keep it. And so there was a real incentive, I think, to keep like when you are at work, you do the work, right? Right. Some companies that are implementing, like there's a German company that's doing this and they like have little cubby holes where you put your phone and you don't have internet during the day because their jobs, like they just don't need to have internet and that sort of thing. So basically it allows you to to actually cultivate that that deep focus. And people so loved having that entire day off that they were able to really push themselves to focus and do that that hard work. And I think any of us, if we actually look at our time working, there's just so much time that we like waste just like, scrolling and looking at weird crap, like yeah. texting with people, doing whatever. And, you know, all those things are actually like, <laughs> they're not bad, but they are just like diluting the amount of work and making it so that you can't group all those moments into one day and then actually do something that you want to do with it. And that thing that you can actually want to do, it doesn't have to be 
oh, I can get a second job during that day, right? It shouldn't have to be a hustle. It should be something like I can actually start to cultivate a hobby or I could dedicate an actual half day to volunteering at the soup bank or being a volunteer firefighter or like spending a half day with my daughter's preschool class. Like all these sorts of things that I think people authentically want to do to get outside of their own little work bubble, but just cannot commit to because we are so obsessed with working all the time. Absolutely. And like, you know, to your, to the point you made in the beginning about working from home, like, I mean, obviously now everybody is doing that, but you know, I have been self-employed for like 10 years and when you are your own office culture, that sense of focus does look very different because it has to. Yep. So I, I think there is like, um, and I mean, that doesn't mean that like, I don't mess that up a lot, but like it, and then it still has been a learning curve, but like that feeling of like, oh, if I just put in like these solid hours and don't like maintain six different chat windows and like do all of that (laughs) stuff or like a classic for me used to be like, oh, well, this is just kind of a brainless task. It's like invoicing or whatever. I'll just throw some TV on the background. And then it's like, oh, it takes me three hours to do this like 45 (laughs) minute task when I'm watching TV at the same time. Right. And it's just like this three hours of like, like you're not choosing your choice. Mm -hmm. Like you're Mm -hmm. not actually like doing something that you want to be doing. It's just kind of like this blah extended space. And I always think of that like when I'm scrolling on my phone as I'm going to bed. I'm like, what am I doing right now? I'm not yeah. doing anything. <laughs> I, I want to be careful here because I don't think that like you have to be doing things all the time. Like that's not what I'm trying to say instead. It's more that like if you want to stare into space, that's great. Be like, I'm staring into space right now. Right. Just be intentional <laughs> about it. Yeah. 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 And I mean like and and this comes up in the book and like every every millennial I know this is true for where you just you make her you make a joke at one point that like you open Instagram and you don't even know why or like that yeah. you do it. Like I do that like 40 times a day. It's just like the first button I hit when I go to my phone. And so yeah. you know, granted it's only the the honeymoon period post reading the book is still very much a thing, but like I am so far trying to be much more aware of like why am I doing this right now? Right. Well, and the thing that's hard to like internalize is that part of the reason you're doing it is because of like the way that the app is engineered, right? which is in some ways out of your control. Like you can only do so much to control your psychological responses to this dumb app. Um, and the way that they have used likes and like, you know, any sort of app, like I make the dumb, the the point in the book about how like, once I've checked all my social media accounts, I'm like, wait, there has to be something else to check. And like, I would like pull up my Delta app to see how many miles I had. I'm like, what am I doing? But it's because like the Delta app has been gamified in order to make it something that you are always working towards, like um, a a goal or an accomplishment when it's (laughs) Delta miles. Uh, But so acknowledging that some of that is out of your control and setting up systems so that you don't even like, put yourself into that realm of temptation, it can feel really infantilizing, right? Because yes. you're like, I am a grown adult. I know how not to click on Instagram, but like our body doesn't know how to not click right. on Instagram. Right, right. Our bodies can't like see a red badge and be like, oh, <laughs> I should go look at that right now. Well, yeah. And what's so, um, what, the, what the book does such a good job of exploring too, is this, the function of social media, um, and, you know, I, th- I think in general, the, the the book does a really good job of saying, like, look, there are all of these issues 
it's not like they stop affecting people across generation lines, but millennials have this unique interaction with them. And like, this is part of why. And, and for social media, it's the fact that like, you know, as, as you kind of have already had already posited at this point in the book, you know, like it's, we're raised as kind of like human capital, you know, where like, there's that great line. I can't remember if it's, if it's from a researcher about like raising, not raising kids, raising resumes. Yep. And so social media is this other, like, it's this other way in which we're capital, right. whether it's cultural or social, or sometimes actually even professional in the case of so many creatives, um, definitely professional. And so you're kind of always like monetizing yourself or commodifying yourself. Yep. And I think, you know, it's instructive I, to look at the fact that like, boomers are so much more drawn to Facebook, which is still a lot of times, you know, either you're reposting some sort of article or something like that, or you're just kind of um, posting something that's mundane. It doesn't necessarily involve a photo. It's not aestheticized usually in quite the Mm -hmm. same way. Like almost all of the boomers that I know who follow me on Instagram, like my, my family, my, my mom's friends, like those sorts of people, they follow because they like seeing photos but like they don't post their own photos Mm -hmm. and I think so much of it has to do with the fact that they have not internalized that idea of themselves as as human capital right right like people really uh bristle at the idea of themselves as brands right like there's something about that word brand that is just repugnant because it so clearly evokes who we've become as individuals under our capitalist system. But it's like, as much as you don't like it, it doesn't mean that it's not true. Like every person that I know on Instagram has some sort of brand. And part of that, you know, the brand might just be like cheery mom, but it's still your brand. And you're thinking about how you can cultivate it or, you know, texture it and all that sort of thing. And that is exhausting. (laughs) Right. I want to talk to make sure we get to talk about um, kind of millennials place in our economy, because there's so much um, there's so much rich stuff here that I think definitely speaks to me as a freelance writer. And I think in general, you know, it was really striking to me to like look at the idea of being freelance, like to broaden that aperture a little bit, because I have always like really enjoyed the freedom of that. And, you know, I always joke, like, which, like, in the context of the book, this joke is, like, especially, like, interesting that, like, I'll say, like, oh, I was the kid in your class who, when we did group projects, I was just like, just give it to me. I'll do it. Yep. <laughs> so yep. it's, like, just, if I just work, just do all the work, then that's fine. Since reading this, I've really been thinking about that as a way of, like, you know, this sounds so Machiavellian, but, like, the system letting you think that you're beating it. Yeah. And I think where that comes up a lot for me, and I would love to talk to you about this, is um, the idea of doing what you love um, and like, you know, have a job that you're passionate about. And, and I think I've been I've been thinking about it since I've been reading the book and preparing to talk to you. And I think it's such a tricky question to formulate for creatives, especially because we do feel so identified mm-hmm. with that work. And so it kind of cuts both ways because like if that's what we're doing full time, then first of all, oh my God, aren't we lucky, you know, the exposure, the whatever. But then also if we're not doing it full time, maybe we're doing it on the sign, maybe we feel like fries. Like it just sort of feels like there's this this sort of, I don't know, um, catch 22 that we just kind of get stuck in. Yeah, I do, I do think that that tension exists because 
when you're doing it full time, it oftentimes sucks the creative energy mm-hmm. from the practice, right? Because you are focused on generating enough income from it that you have to focus on output in a way that you might not otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just, it becomes <laughs> a business like any other. Whereas people who are doing it more on the side are like, what could I do if I had all of my time to work on this? <laughs> but they have a little bit more of the stability, um, but are craving more of the time in order to to really be able to like let ideas expand and that sort of thing. But I do think that the people who maybe have the healthiest relationship with their creative output are people who do have that like steady job job and who can allocate some of the time of their weekends or, you know, the a couple hours before work, whatever, like that time becomes precious to them. But then they also have the added benefit of having that stability in the other part of their lives. Right. And it becomes maybe easier to draw boundaries. Right. Right. And, and also like when you're not worried about making rent for the month, your mind can go to a lot of other places. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know people, I know writers who do feel like a little bit of shame about that. They're like, oh, like I, like I know someone who like works as a a clerk in the like county auditor's office, like a very straightforward nine to five job, but the stability of that and the boundaries of that job, right? Allow her to make so much other space in her life to do the things that creatively nourish her and to work on her book. And because she's not within that like uber competitive on Twitter all the time, must be producing, you know, you're only as good as your last post. Like, I think her book is going to be really marvelous because it's operating outside of that economy. Right. You know, definitely speaking from my own experience, when I first went freelance, I spent the first few years wanting to really kind of like, I just feel so mid-20s as I'm about to say it out loud. I was like, okay, I want to make all my money from journalism. And I did, and I did okay, right. but I didn't care about and outright hated a lot of what I was writing, you know, because you just have to, you have to churn out so much stuff. Yep. And so I reached this point where I was like, well, I'm not creatively satisfied and I'm not financially satisfied. So like, what am I doing? And once I kind of like figured out what adjusting all of those dials looked like for myself, which is, you know, it's always a work in progress. Right. And I think that's that's something that I really was struck by reading the book and, and thinking about my relationship with social media and other millennials on social media is you do feel this sense of like, you know, because we're we are putting we as a country are putting so much pressure on the individual, you know, like you've got this great line, it's the millennial way. If the system is rigged against you, just try harder. So it's like, okay, well, it's your problem. It's your problem. Yep. It's your problem. Um, and so you see people kind of broadcasting these um, filtered experiences of their own lives. And you think like, oh, see, they figured it out. Why haven't I figured it out? Right. Well, and <laughs> and I think we broadcast those as like kind of we're telling ourselves a story with each Instagram post of I figured it out, right? Like just like, right. <laughs> like if you say it enough times, if you post enough pictures of seemingly figured it out, maybe you'll convince yourself that you figured it out. But no, it's throwing yourself against a wall. Each time you get a little bit more bruised, we cannot do it on our own. Yeah. You say in the introduction of the book that, that the COVID outbreak happened kind of as you were polishing things up. 
And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I think pretty much you said, you know, I decided not to revisit the entire book. I think that this experience is going to amplify everything that's already been written um, in the book. So like the introduction mentions COVID, but, but nothing else really does. But I think it does in the same ways that you talk about, you know, our transition to this idea of the gig economy and like all of these sorts of like, all of these, I don't even know what to call them. They're not quite solutions, but all of these variations on our capitalist like reality and the ways that they show how broken and how rotted that foundation actually is. COVID has done the same thing, you know, for our economy, for our, for our political life. How do you see this moment? Do you think that this is like a catalyst moment? I mean, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, I do think that before COVID people were really tired and had like a, a fair amount of simmering anger but what COVID has done is made that anger like bubble over you know like uh, each of us feels I think barely contained in our fury at how the country has handled this pandemic how every single social system has been falling apart you know I was reading there's like every week there's a new piece about how various countries feel sorry for us. Right. <laughs> there was an interview in the New York Times with a legislator in Myanmar, which is a state that is dealing with, you know, so many different messed up components of its own society and, and a lot of generational poverty and still recovering from a, a fascist regime. And they're like, oh yeah, I feel sorry for America. Right. <laughs> but there's nothing we could do. We're just a small country. And I'm like, Myanmar like me and my feels, feels sorry for us. Like I feel so sorry for us. And for, especially for people who are acutely suffering, like any of my suffering from my like isolated house where I'm like tweeting onto the internet, I feel very uh, like, I don't have to deal every day with the calculations and the dangers and all of that additional precarity that comes from having to go out into the world. Right. So I hope that we can take all of this rage. This is all to say that I hope we can take all of this rage and not only like actually vote in a way that ushers in regime change, but then also make ourselves flexible, amenable to really big changes. Because it's not like we can't just do little small piddly changes. Like we have to do like big systemic changes. And a lot of what holds us back is people being like, I don't know, like, is there going to be a backlash? Like, uh, you know, what if we lose the house? Like all of these, I think, you know, merited considerations. The problem is like, we, we do need big, big change. The sort of change that a company like the 1930s and how we recovered from the Great Depression. Like <laughs> there need to be things that, turn our society on its side, reorient ourselves towards work, towards parenting, towards our conception of essential workers and their value. All of that stuff needs to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself wondering again and again, I mean, as I have kind of, you know, through the past year, but just like reading the book, just just thinking, what is our social contract right now? Like, what does it even look like? You know, and so much that this book makes abundantly clear too is how we've privatized public problems. Yeah. You know, like it, it reminds me, like, did you see this article um, about how Jeff Bezos wants to like open this like low income preschool or something? And it's like, well, but our labor system is broken and that's mm-hmm. why 
like, and you've profited off of our broken labor system. <laughs> so like what I hope also can come from that is this sense of just like, however big you believe politically government should be that like, we could at least agree that like government has some sort of obligation to society. Right. Well, and the thing about, I mean, you can call it like a neoliberal society or whatever big word you want to use to describe it is that if you decide that you want individuals or private institutions to be in charge with fixing our problems, like it's never going to be distributed equitably. Right. One of the critiques of my book is like, she should talk more about therapy. And I'm like, therapy is great, but do you know who can't get therapy? Like most people, right? <laughs> like the the cost of therapy in the city is so expensive. Finding someone in network, the the ability to find a therapist. Like my mom lives in rural Idaho. Like she like is on a waiting list to see a therapist and might never get off of it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that is something that people who do have regular, affordable access to therapy. Do not understand. And therapy won't fix it either. Right. Like therapy would maybe make you feel less crappy about dealing with your everyday situation, slightly less crappy, but it, the situation's still going to be crappy. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think about um, there's a line in one of the books, I think it's in Darcy Lockman's book about, it's called All the Rage, and it's about parenting and, and uh, inequitable distribution of labor in the home. And it's talking about like how oftentimes like moms just really feel like they're the only ones dealing with a certain problem. Mm -hmm. They're like, this is my individual problem as a mom. Like I'm not making it work, something like that. And the fact is though, that like if every mom is having some version of this problem tailored in some ways to their individual situation, but like is having some version of that problem, that's not an individual problem. That is a societal problem. Right. And the only way that you solve that is by solving it for society. So you have to solve it, not just for yourself, not just for people in your friend group or your economic group or your neighborhood. You have to solve it, come up with a solution that works or is attempting to work for everyone. Right. I'm glad you bring up parenting because that is, that is, um, kind of in the, in the last chapters of the book. Um, and I was so struck by this, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't have any plans to become a parent, but I have friends who are millennial parents. And so I kind of see the inside of some of these um, situations. But And I was stunned that like, I can't remember the exact stats, but, but I, the, the amount of paternal participation has only increased like 10% over <laughs> generations. And right. I was trying to like square that idea the other day together with this. um, I had seen this headline that like, I mean, there are a million examples of what I'm about to say, but this headline that um, Chuck Schumer is co-sponsoring this bill to like forgive $50,000 of student loan debt per person because of the pandemic. And like the idea that Schumer is involved in that, like just really, I, I think speaks to just like how slowly but surely, like we are pushing the democratic agenda, like, a little bit, but to, so to just kind of see that happen so fast yep. and then to like look at this parenting data and just watch that, that speed kind of like overlaid on the other, on the slowness of that change. Um, yeah, I don't even have a question. I was just like trying to figure out like how they could both be true at the same time. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's so stubborn about paternal involvement, like it's, well, first of all, it's another thing of like incrementalism, or at least like, I think a lot of parents find themselves in this like comparative situation where they're like, 
Yeah. Oh, my situation right now isn't as bad as other people have it. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, my husband does more than that husband. Or my husband does more than my dad did. That is such a crappy place to be, right? If you're ex- <laughs> and also, I think you can extrapolate that idea to like our entire outlook yes. as people right now. It's like, oh, well, at least I have a job. It's like, right. I'm getting paid 20 cents a word, but at least I'm getting paid, <laughs> you know, like that that's become a thing among writers to be like, and they pay. And it's like, well, right. they fucking better pay. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> yeah. And I think that uh, what it does is it it prevents a lot of people for, from asking for more because they feel guilty. And, and that is just such a pernicious ideology that like somehow that you should be grateful for what you have and thus not ask for more. And what it does is it ends up like you just settle for less, right? You settle for less in your life. You settle for for more instability, you settle for you know the the place where men's labor is sticking. That percentage of breakdown in heterosexual homes is right at thirty five percent. Thirty five percent of the labor in the home, um, and this is in and the, and the amazing bookend to that is that forty percent of millennial fathers believe that they share <laughs> that they're doing equal work. Well, and that's one of those things. Again, you can you can do a lot of work on communication and on like talking about the mental load and all those sorts of things in therapy or whatever. It still is not going to budge that much because the things that they have found that actually change the division of domestic labor in the home is something like forcing dads to stay home mm-hmm. if possible by themselves with their children mm-hmm. because that illuminates for them all of the different facets of running a household that they did not see. Right. And that only happens if paternity leave is not only available, but also in some capacity mandatory. Right. Right. And that is something that like, we don't even have mandatory (laughs) maternity leave. Right. And, but you see it too also, you know, inscribed through language, HR language, things like saying things like primary and secondary Mm. parenting, you know, like that, the idea that somehow the parent who is breastfeeding or gave birth to the the child, that they are positioned as the primary parent that sets you up for that division of labor going forward. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't know that not, not having to deal thankfully with parenting language in HR, but that's horrifying. Um, I want to make sure we talk a little bit about writing and the writing process and kind of your writing life, um, because you have a really interesting niche of of being, you know, as you said, you are kind of first and foremost an academic, but you you kind of have built your career and, you know, your work with BuzzFeed is this really, it's kind of this crossover. It's like this nice, like, um, this nice crossover that did that kind of happen organically? Or I know you talk a little bit in the book that you had just started doing your own, you know, you were blogging on your own because you kind of wanted to, to get writing out in the world. Um, how did that kind of evolve to things like, like the book and, and, you know, the reported essays that you do for Buzzfeed and that kind of stuff? Yeah, it really did start as like my WordPress blog. This was in like the late 2000s, like 2007, 2008. A lot of academics had WordPress blogs at that time. And it was the way in a sort of early Twitter and pre-Twitter world that academics were talking more informally with one another. And, and, kind of germinating ideas and that sort of thing. And plus I was just lonely. I was studying for my comprehensive exams and 
that meant like spending all day reading and and not having a lot of people to talk to about those ideas and and trying to articulate them in a way for a larger audience made me feel like I was putting my arms around the idea a little bit more. Right. And then, you know, I th- I just think there are some people who like love processing through writing, you know, just love, love to blog <laughs> or love to tweet or whatever. And that is a, a posture and a way of writing. And some people are so much more internal and private about their writing and don't want it to be out there for other people to talk with them about or react off of until it feels like it's in its final form. And I don't think either form is better. I just think that they're different and that I am a person who has always been like, talk to me, (laughs) like react to me. (laughs) Uh, And that is why when I was in my final year of my dissertation, I was reading The Hairpin, which is R.I.P. Like, the Hairpin. R.I.P. Truly R.I.P. But like that world of websites that came up from the ashes of the Great Recession was just cultivating like very weird niche voices. Yeah. And part of the reason it was able to do so was because they weren't paying anyone. And that broadened the like the number of people who could who could rate for it because all these academics were like, well, I'm used to not getting paid for anything. <laughs> That's really um, funny. Actually, I never put it together, but my other, the other person I know who wrote regularly for the hairpin is a friend of mine who's an English professor. And she would do these like house hunter spoofs. Yeah. They were like classic literature houses. Yeah. And of course, it, it's like such a great outlet. If you are an academic, you're like, I'm going to do this funny writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There are like a number of academics who found their way to more popular writing vis-a-vis writing for places like the Hairpin and the All. Lily Loofborough, who writes for for Slate, is one of my favorite writers on the internet. Like she was working on her PhD and just like writing these expansive pieces about, well, basically everything. But um, But I feel weird about that, right? Because in hindsight, I was essentially like crossing the picket line for lack of a better word like all of these freelance writers who were like I'm not going to write for nothing for this site because I'm a freelance writer who is making their money through freelancing we were like oh well of course we'll write for free like (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really tough because I mean like yeah and and I mean I've I've certainly written for free you know like it's it's definitely not a cut and dry thing but um yeah. But, but like, I don't know how to feel about that now because I have some writers, like I have this newsletter now that now that I've gone freelance, I guess is the way to put it. But some writers who are like, I want to write something for your site. And I'm like, I don't have the money to pay you right now. And I don't feel okay about not paying you right. to have content on the site. And they're like, I just want the exposure. But that when you have, when people write for exposure and when you allow them to write for exposure, you are driving down the rates that other freelancers can ask for. It's a really sticky place. I don't know what to do about it. I want to make enough money so that I can pay people. Right, right. And everybody should subscribe to (laughs) the newsletter. It's great. Um, So, (laughs) well, that's, and that, and I did actually want to talk to you about that, you know, in terms of just the business of being a writer, you know, because like you have this platform on Substack, which is like this, it feels new to me. I don't know how super new it is, but you know, this new way to kind of like reach an audience and also let them pay you. You know, I mentioned at the outset that like, we're also going to be chatting for Patreon, which is like another such platform that I use. Like how, how have you found having a freelance career? Uh, 
You know, the thing that was great about going to Substack, and they've done this with a handful of other writers, is they were like, I get it. You don't want to just like depend on getting a certain number of subscribers. Like in order for you to make the jump from your full-time staff position and to doing this, you need some sort of assurance, some sort of stability. I certainly did. And so they do this program where they're like, okay, we're going to give you like essentially a base salary. They call it a grant. And for the first Mm -hmm. year, and then you can take 15% of the money that you make. And then next year you can reevaluate. And so for me, that was like, okay, this makes sense to me. I can do this while feeling stable. And it, it reminds me actually of what people do when they have like some sort, like we were talking about earlier, like you have some sort of stable job that is your base job. And then you can do some more experimental freelance stuff on the side. So for me, my experimental freelance stuff is like working on another book, doing the publicity for this book, right. like, which involves doing podcasts like this and, and doing other work. And then occasionally like taking another freelance gig that that pays. But then having this community of writers, like what I love about it is that over the course of my career, I've been doing this long enough. And I have like this Facebook page where I've had this community of people since I was writing the original blog, that I have people who approach my writing and my thinking in good faith. And that doesn't mean that they always necessarily agree with me. But when they get that newsletter in their inbox, no matter what the subject is, Mm -hmm. that they're like, I am not approaching Mm -hmm. this as like, who is this weirdo on the internet who has an opinion? They already are like, I I want to listen to this and I want to read it. And if I'm going to disagree, I can disagree and we can have a conversation about right. it, but I'm not going to be like, you're thinking too hard about this <laughs> or all of the various things that used to show up regularly in the comments section of my pieces on Buzzfeed. So I really appreciate that. Right. Well, and, and I mean, yeah, the comment section, I don't even know what, what to <laughs> say about that, but like, you know, I, I think there is a certain, um, invitational quality to your writing. And I think that like, you know, the BuzzFeed pieces, like, I love that the internet has birthed this form of just like, really long form think pieces that kind of can go in all of these weird directions. But then I all I don't necessarily want to sit down and read all of them. But like, and Lily, and like, I think there's so many great examples of it. I mean, I think Gia Tolentino is amazing at this. And I think Can You Chapter Keep is amazing at this. It's just like, kind of taking this like, really conversational approach to this really long form, like, very intelligent, very thoughtful analysis of whatever the subject is. Yeah. And I, I want to be able to still like make space for those longer analytical investigations. Like right. the, and and that's part of like my deal with Substack was like, they are going to pay for an editor for those longer things. My task moving forward, you know, I've only been doing the newsletter for like a little more than a month now is like, how am I going to find my rhythm between <clears throat> the like weekly, the biweekly posts that I do. So I do like one on Sunday and one in the middle of the week. And they're a mix of like, sometimes they're very bloggy, like, you know, what's going on with pandemic grooming? And then sometimes they're more reported, but balancing that mm-hmm. with the larger, longer form analysis that requires a lot more investment. Can we talk a little bit about how you kind of, like what your process looks like, where like researching meets the writing? Like how how are you kind of 
synthesis. I think like part of what I was trying to articulate about your piece is that is I think like the synthesis feels so natural. Mm. So so kind of where where does that happen for you? Are you kind of do you have like a an approach with like collating your research, thinking about your research, making you know how do you how do you get from step A to step B? I guess. It really, it depends on the subject, but oftentimes for like cultural objects or phenomena or that sort of thing, I'm always trying to contextualize. I think of it as like horizontally and vertically. And what I mean Mm. by that is like contextualize within our current society, like what's going on, how is this thing happening in our current society? But then also like, what is the history of this thing? And usually that involves just like someone else who's thought about this in the past and like reading their, their excellent history and I feel lucky that I know I have the tools to read both popular analyses in history and more academic style. And, but then I also have the skills to be able to really decipher what's going on in an academic text. And that's not because I'm smarter. It's because I've just read a lot of academic texts. (laughs) And so, you know, like, oh, okay. So here's the part when they do their lit review, where they talk about all of the other things that they read. Like I can kind of skim over that part uh, and and find some of the the really interesting and compelling and, and novel analysis. And then the thing that I have learned from reporting is that there's only so much that you can do from actually reading people's histories and that sort of thing. Sometimes you actually need to get on the phone and actually talk to people. So I've really appreciated like any type of story, just talking to people who are actually going through it or experiencing it or using an item or, you know, making meaning out of something, like just ask them, just talk to them. And that is always like a very edifying, texturizing, that's not a word, but it adds texture experience. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Creative satisfaction. Um, I just think it, it's every day it looks like finding more things that are interesting to me. And I like, I really think everything is interesting in terms of like, oh, what the town that you're from, tell me what's interesting about it. Like, I'm always curious about those sorts of things. Uh, there's ways that any place that you are, any like hobby that you have, like they can always be interesting. So continually finding ways to excavate that interestingness is important to me. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been great talking with you. Fantastic. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I had fun. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the LitHub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.